The Bob Murphy Show, episode 192. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This particular episode contains the hot-button issue of COVID passports. And so what happened is I originally recorded the whole episode... And, but I I just felt funny about it. And I realized what it was is that I know what's going to happen is some people are going to listen to it because they're going to see the headline and say, oh, I want to see what Murphy says about this. And they're going to go in with presuppositions that you're either one camp or the other. And since, as is my want, I try to be very nuanced and say, wait, 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 guys, what about this? And it ends up that perhaps people would misunderstand what my actual position is because I'm trying so hard to cover all the bases and whatnot. For those of you who know me well, you understand that's the way I approach issues, okay? So since this is such a critical issue right now, let me first on this front end here state in very plain, direct language what my actual view of the situation is, and then we'll go ahead and get into my original recorded podcast episode where I do it in the more conventional Murphy-esque approach of being very nuanced and let's make sure we don't miss anything in our in our discussion. Okay, so in the real world right now, these COVID passports, I think, are a terrible idea. The people pushing them from, you know, the government and top levels of corporations and whatnot are nefarious. It is not at all about keeping the public safe, right? It is a way they realized, and, you know, you can go back and look at the stuff has been in the works for a while, you know, there's early conferences and things that people talking about what would happen in a global pandemic and da, 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 and this is what we would do. So if you believe, as I do, that there are nefarious people who want the ability of governments to track citizens and that they would love to, you know, have either papers or now in more, more modern age, something on your phone or even something inside your body, that, you know, would be scanned or whatever at various checkpoints so they could always just keep tabs on you, then they would love to have that in place. If they just announced that at the outset and said, hey, we would like the ability to be able to just track everybody, wouldn't that be great? People would freak out and say, heck no. I remember reading a book that was named after a year that seems to suggest that would be a bad road to go down. And so this COVID passport is a way to get the same thing under the guise of, managing a pandemic or, you know, minimizing disease outbreaks and stuff. And because again, they're not going to say, okay, now that the threat of COVID-19 has gone by the wayside, we can go ahead and discontinue that. That's not what they're going to do. They're going to say, well, since we've got this infrastructure in place, let's go ahead and be proactive and be ahead of the curve next, you know, for the next pandemic. So it doesn't turn into a pandemic, right? And then they can never be wrong. Just like with the TSA, if there was never another terrorist attack on U.S. soil, they would just say, yeah, it just proves what a good job we're doing. Right, so they could, they will, there would never be a reason for them to admit, okay, we don't need this anymore. All right, so that's for sure. Now you say, okay, you so you don't want the government doing it. But what about private business? 
I also, in the real world, in this current environment right now, don't want private businesses doing that because normal people walking around do not make these fine distinctions between government and business the way libertarian theorists do. And that will just feed into the general culture of this being normal. And, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, it isn't really that big a deal if you want to go shopping that you got to prove that you've been vaccinated, right? So I'm also against private business. Also, just because realistically, if private businesses wanted to be part of a vaccine checkpoint program, it would get rolled into the government system just because practically how, how would you be able to have a, a system side by side? I, you know, there's probably all sorts of HIPAA violations and things if they weren't somehow in coordination with federal health officials and whatnot, right? So it, it's arguably illegal right now with the current regulatory and legal framework for businesses to have a robust, effective way of keeping people off their property unless they can show proof of vaccination, all right? So there's, there's that element. And again, like I said, just so that's, you know, my take. Now, do I think as a standard Rothbardian that other levels of government should make it illegal for private businesses to insist on COVID passports or whatnot? This is way murkier, okay? And I'm here, my squeamishness goes the other way. So just like I say with the idea of a private business saying, hey, to get in here, you got to show proof you've been vaccinated. That makes me queasy. I don't like the looks of this. I get a bad feeling. Going the other way, if politicians start saying we're going to make it illegal for businesses to do that, then I get nervous too for various reasons. Even besides the particular of this issue, once you grant that precedent, then don't be surprised if other things start following that you didn't, you know, you wouldn't have approved of initially, even though you might have been fine with that initial prohibition. Okay, so here, to me, this is pretty standard stuff. This is just like, for example, you know, heroin use. Do I want the federal government giving out heroin to kids? No, of course not. That's crazy. Do I want private businesses giving heroin out to people? No, I don't. Do I think it should be illegal for private citizens or businesses to distribute heroin? No, I don't. This is all standard stuff as a, certainly as a Christian libertarian, right? Okay, and so that's pretty analogous to my position on COVID passports, that I don't want the government doing it at all. I don't want private sector actors doing it. But when it comes to should other levels of government prohibit people in the private sector from doing it there, I, no, I, I think that's, for one thing, I, I just, I don't think that's can be square with standard libertarian theory. Now, I, I said it's murky, let me just say one last thing on that and then I'll stop this preface because I've pretty much stated my position succinctly, which is a point of this little initial preface. It gets into weird, like if a government official, like, you know, if Governor DeSantis merely says it is illegal for businesses in Florida to participate in a federal COVID passport program, but he leaves open the possibility that they have some sort of, you know, purely private sector program of, of verification then there, I, you would be on much stronger footing from a standard libertarian perspective, I would say. All right, I, I'm still not, you know, again, I don't want to get into it. It's not worth getting into the particulars. I'm just saying that is way firmer than just a blanket prohibition. Say, no, period, no business in the state of Florida can ask anybody to show proof of vaccination before entry. Okay, so, and, and for people who want to get into it, I mean, it's it gets weird. Like, for example, just to show you what I mean, it wouldn't be weird from a libertarian perspective if 
a governor said no business in this state can say to somebody when, hey, if you want to come onto this property, you have to first pull out your phone and show footage of you punching a stranger in the face, right? It's not obvious what, quote, the libertarian take on such a prohibition would be because they're, the condition for entry is you violating somebody else's rights. And so, you know, is it, would it be unlibertarian for a governor to say to businesses you can't insist that people violate other people's rights before you enter the property? So that's what I'm saying. Like there it's, I mean, you could say, well, governor should resign immediately and anything else is unlibertarian. Okay, fine. But you get the point, I'm, I hope, that to say businesses aren't allowed to cooperate with a federal program that involves all kinds of rights violations, there it's much more of an open question as to what's, quote, the libertarian position. And different libertarians could, could disagree on that, I think, quite reasonably so. Okay, so there, there's my succinct statement of my position on COVID passports in the real world right now as a libertarian Christian. And now we'll go ahead and get into the originally recorded version where I perhaps didn't say things as forcefully and just assumed most listeners would, would know the general framework, but I didn't want to assume such at the outset. Hey, everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Let me first of all mention I am recording this particular episode on the lanai, which is some fancy term of meaning a back porch, at my parents' place in Florida, the free state of Florida, as some call it. And so you may hear the occasional bird chirping or, I don't know, an alligator chomping my foot. And uh, I don't know if the, the resonance of my soothing voice will be different or if my sound guy can clean it up. But in any event, I am in a slightly different location. And so I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. What I'm going to be doing in this episode is drawing together several different strands of various topics, but they all fit together and sort of uh, serendipitous. So on February 19th, there was a part of the problem episode where Dave Smith had a guest by the name of Michael Malice. Some of you may have heard of him. And the title of that episode was They Don't Care About You. And I, when I listened to that episode, they made a few points that I thought, wow, there's some stuff here that I think it's worth me on the Bob Murphy show, you know, playing the clip of and then responding to or elaborating on because it's a good red meat for ANCAPs out there kind of thing where either because I disagreed with what they were saying or because I agreed with it and just wanted to flush it out more. And obviously we'll, we'll get to the particular points as this episode unfolds. But then various things kept happening that were more newsworthy. You know, I hit the way, of course, you, you longtime listeners have gotten the pattern here that I record the interviews and I try to intersperse it. And then there was so much current events stuff going on that I actually increased the gap so that I would be doing two solo episodes before returning then to an interview. And that was the pattern I was doing for a little bit. And even so, I just couldn't work it in to come back and hit this part of the problem one. And as the time kept passing, I was eventually thinking, gee, am I just going to give that one up? But it turns out that what I really wanted to talk about in this particular episode right now was this COVID passport stuff. And yet it does tie in with the things I wanted to discuss from this February 19th episode of Part of the Problem. So that's how this is all coming together, that I am going to be able to talk about the current events things right now as I'm recording this in early April. This is 2021 for future historians. And like I say, it dovetails nicely with some of the points I wanted to make. So at first it might sound like I'm doing a potpourri, but actually, like I said, these things all tie together. So 
without further ado, let's jump right in. This first clip I'm gonna play for you, and by the way, as always, when I do these audio clips, unless I fear there's gonna be a copyright strike against me, which I'm presumably not gonna get from broadcasting from fellow podcasters, I like to play quotes on the or excerpts on the longer side because I think that helps you get the context of what these people are saying so that you know you don't have to worry that, oh, wait a minute, it's Bob pulling them out and making it appear that they're talking about one thing when really they're not. So I, I like that. I know when I listen to other people's shows, I for sure don't like it when someone just tells me, oh, this is what this person said. And then if you go and click through and you're like, well, actually, that's not what they said. So to avoid that sort of worry, that's why these clips are going to be on the longer side. Let's see this clip right here. I'll just give you an idea just to pace yourself mentally. This clip's going to be about four and a half to five minutes long. But like I say, it's it's good stuff. It's Michael and Dave talking. And I didn't officially say this. I like Dave's show a lot. And Michael Malice is always a very interesting guest. And so part of the reason I'm focusing on these is because I like it, you know, to the extent that some of the stuff I'm going to say is going to be disagreeing with them or thinking, oh, they missed some obvious point or what, I, what have you. It's not because, oh, look at these guys, they're stupid. They don't know anarchism. It's precisely because they are some of the leading porch bearers when it comes to Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism, certainly in bringing that message to the masses that if I do think, you know, they could have said something differently or, hey, there's more to be said on this particular thing, that, that that's why I'm highlighting them, not because, oh man, they're the worst people on this topic. Far, far from it. It's the opposite. Okay, so here we go. This first clip, the context is they're talking about a conservative who... I'm not familiar with this guy that they're talking about, but from the context, it sounds like he you know, has very libertarian leanings, perhaps even once was a libertarian. I'm not sure about that point, but he's explaining why he can't be a libertarian in today's climate when the stakes are so high politically. And you know, libertarianism for him is, is just not, is not where it's at. And so that's a lot of what Dave and Michael were talking about in this episode that I'm excerpting from. And you'll see later they come back to it too in one of the later clips that I play. So that's part of what's going on here. And just to give you a heads up, what's really interesting is how Dave, and perhaps to a lesser extent Michael, agree with the thrust of what this guy is going to be saying as a conservative, that the libertarians when it comes to the issue of big tech censorship are annoying. And you know the, the way they talk, many libertarians talk about the notion of or the concept or phenomenon of big tech censorship it's frustrating and it's understandable why regular people listen to what the libertarians have to say about it, you know, Twitter and Facebook deplatforming conservatives for hate speech or whatever when come on, that's not what they're doing. That's not what those, you know, the, the voices were saying. And then when you hear standard libertarians talk about it, in many cases, it's just like, well, well, these guys are clueless. Let's move on to somebody else who might actually have a solution. All right. So that's the basic thing, but you'll get that from this clip. So let's go ahead and roll the clip. So I wanted to ask you also, and this will just lead to some kind of anarchist philosophy, but applying it to uh, today's world. Did you get flooded with tweets over Will Chamberlain's appearance on Tim Pool? Because I did, and he didn't no. mention me, mentioned you. Uh, I did not get flooded. So okay, I know so he used just, one of my quotes. He brought you up, not like a lot, and he was not yeah. being like, you know, We're pals. unkind or anything. Yeah, now I don't know 
Will. Um, I mean, we follow each other on Twitter, but like I've never had a conversation with him before. But so I just start getting like flooded on Twitter because I guess he was taking some shots at libertarians and kind okay. of, you know, talking about what he why he's not a libertarian anymore sure. and, and all this other stuff. And but a lot of people were tweeting at me. So I, I ended up going and, and watching it. And I actually thought it was it was really interesting. And um, basically, the conversation was going in a very libertarian direction because that's just the nature of Tim Pool's show. Yeah, is he just keeps bringing up articles about what the government's doing, and at every <laughs> yeah. turn, it's the most corrupt, awful, you know, uh, counterproductive <laughs> thing. And direct, so you yeah. just you sit there and you sound like a libertarian, even when you're not one. You know, like right. you're just kind of unknowingly almost like making this case. And then at a certain point, I think. Will almost felt like the need to be like, hey, look, this is why I'm not a libertarian and what I don't like about them. And he brought up several issues. Uh, he did bring up you specifically about the um, he said he kind of presented it like you were saying he's thinking like a leftist. Yes. And he was saying the government needs to regulate social media. Yeah. Um, and that then a, a year later or two years later, when he was on your show, you had basically conceded that he had a, a good point or something like that. And I was like, I don't think that second part happened. That's going to no, be my guess. I, I that he's misremembering that, that. No, I conceded that he's making an interesting argument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he is, is making an interesting yeah. argument, which which a lot of uh, conservatives are. And and I got to say, I mean, I know we've discussed this briefly before, but it's, it's worth talking about um, that from my perspective, I think that the way – a lot of libertarians talk about the tech censorship stuff is really stupid yes. and dismissive and just makes you sound like, you know, uh, it, it hands the conservatives a big win on this argument when you don't need to, because there really isn't a very strong argument for the government right. to regulate big tech. But if you just look there and pretend there's no problem going on or pretend right. this is a private relevant, company, they can do whatever company. they want. Yeah. It's just so stupid. And it, and it so comes you, you know what? Can I just say one thing? I got to interrupt you. Sure. If sure. anyone here says it's a private company, they could do what they want. Don't ever use Yelp. <laughs> right. Don't ever use a read a book review. It's it, this is such an aspie, like really, like I can't have time for this argument. No one is. First of all, it's not true. They can't. I always when I sometimes when I'm in a mood and they say that I go, do you agree we should repeal all anti-discrimination laws immediately? Because they're not. They can't do that if they don't want to. That's just a very right. obvious one off the top of their head. But the idea that you can't criticize this is the argument of how the free market regulates things. It regulates things through reputation. It regulates things through word of mouth. It's not like everyone does whatever they want all the time and has no pushback ever. If you're right. in my house and you, th I think Rothbard talked about what do you call them? Modal libertarians. It's the kind of people that come to your house and take a dump on the floor and say, well, it's a free country. It's just like, what are you doing? This has nothing well, to do with the, the, the Alice Shrug speech. Well, and it also, it feels almost like, you know, I, I don't even know what the hypothetical to come up with, but like if we lived in a free market society completely, you know, a complete anarchist right. society and pretty much, you know, like three companies had bought up like all of some precious sure. resource and were keeping it away from some people to just sit there and be like, well, my philosophy tells me that yeah. this is okay. It feeds into the worst impression of libertarians, which some libertarians really live up to, which yeah. is that- I have this great philosophy in my mind. I feel really great about myself because I'm pure and logically consistent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I don't care. I can't get slowed down by petty little forces like the real worlds that you live in. That's not my problem, man. I'm here in my perfect libertarian world. And what I always try to stress to people is that the reason why our philosophy is awesome is because it actually works in real life and solves real problems that people have. Okay, so there you have it.
and like I say, I'm hoping get the gist of it because I've given such long clips here. So what I want to do now to tie this, so I think we all get the point, right? Let me just say it in my own words just to really understand now the analog I'm going to bring in that there is a problem, right, with big tech censorship. And a lot of people on the right are turning to the government to try to fix it because they say, look, there is this problem. It is a serious problem. These platforms, these companies are deplatforming right-wing commentators for bogus reasons, and this is very harmful. And we should do something about this. We shouldn't just ignore it. Why don't we turn to the government, have it regulate this as a public utility, for example? Or let's look again at Section 230, blah, blah, blah. And so Dave and Michael, and Bob Murphy too, agree that, you know what? In this climate now, with this situation, when libertarians, some of them, come up, look around and say, well, private companies, no problem here. And actually, I've even seen, here, let me, just so you guys know, I'm on your side. Let me pick Andy Craig. So back in January 10th, 2020, he tweeted out, plenty of questionable choices or misfiring algorithms, but I've yet to hear of anybody who got banned by a social media platform for advocating lower taxes, school choice, and constitutional originalism. Almost like it's not really about, quote, censoring conservatives, right? So that was Andy Craig's take back in January of, of actually, I wonder if that was 2021. Because I wonder if I mislabeled. Yes, it was. It was, it was 2021. I, I mislabeled it on my little tab there. Okay, so... That was how Andy Craig responded when many right-wing type libertarians were complaining about, whoa, the wave of deplatformings that were going on in January of 2021, saying, like, come on, this guys, this isn't really about you're being banned because you're conservative. It's really because, you know, you guys are, are racist or whatever, anti-Semitic or whatever, Holocaust deniers. Let's be, let's be honest, guys. I, Andy Craig, I'm not worried about it. No decent person's going to get kicked off these things. Or if they are, it's because of a misfiring algorithm and surely justice will be restored. So that is the kind of attitude that Dave and Michael are responding to and saying, this is not helpful, guys. If we libertarians appear to people on the right is if we are denying that there even is a problem. And then we say, and by the way, the government can't regulate it because it's private business, QED, then the conservative types are going to say, all right, well, this is just another reason I'm not a libertarian. These people are idiots. They put their principles above results and they allow injustice to flourish because, ooh, they're too concerned about the jot and tittle of property rights. Okay, I agree with all that. And the irony is turning to the government to try to fix this problem will only make it worse, as I spelled out, I hope, in my thoughts when I, when I did an episode of the Bob Murphy Show on big tech censorship. So I'll link to that in the show notes page. So right now, folks, you're listening to bobmurphyshow.com slash 192. And you can go there to see links to all this stuff. So here again, just to elaborate a little bit more on what we're saying about big tech censorship, there really is a problem. The left libertarian types are correct when they say the government, bringing the government in will only make it worse. It won't solve the problem. And by the way, we're not even really sure there is a problem. You guys are all imagining it. It's all in your head, right? And so Michael and Dave and Bob Murphy are saying that is a bad response. Yes, you're correct. Turning to the government is wrong. But when you then couple that with apparent disdain for people who are actually concerned about this problem and you act like it's not even an issue, 
then you're just telling people, don't listen to me because I don't share your concerns, the things you're worried about, the reason you're turning to the government. I'm not saying, oh yeah, you're right. This is an issue, big tech censorship. But let's think through, is, is turning to the government really going to help? No, when you just say, it's not a problem, you're just a racist. We'll move on. Then don't be surprised when nobody takes you seriously and they turn to the government, right? I, I hope everyone agrees that I'm fairly summarizing what Dave and Michael's position was on this and I'm saying also mine. Okay, so now let me just, I know a lot of you aren't going to want to hear this and you're going to recoil and say, no, Bob, you're wrong. See, when they do it, they're idiots, but when we do it, it's because we're right. This is my point, guys, of what has happened through 2020, except change it when it comes to right libertarians talking about COVID-19 and what the standard progressive wants to do. The standard progressive says, oh my gosh, there's this huge problem. There's a global pandemic. Lots of people are going to die unless behavior changes. And that's why we need to turn to the government because obviously the market by itself will not fix this or will not adequately address this huge issue. And a lot of right libertarians have said, no, you're wrong for turning to the government. That would make it worse. In any way, this isn't a problem. This is the flu at worst. This is Just go get some sunlight. What are you talking about? There's no issue here. It's because people are fat. That's it. End of story. All right. So again, just like if you understood what we were talking, what Dave and Michael were recoiling against and why they were telling the left libertarians when you act like this isn't even a problem, don't be surprised when normal people say, okay, then if you don't even acknowledge something's going on here, then I'm going to listen to you. And don't be surprised when they then turn to the government because you're kind of telling them, right, the market won't fix this because it's not an issue. So you're admitting implicitly that if you want to do some of a big tech censorship, you need to change government policies. And likewise, I'm saying, if you're telling people, no, there really isn't a pandemic, this is all a hoax cooked up by Fauci and Bill Gates, then don't be surprised when, quote, normal people who are not libertarian skeptics of, you know, pharmaceutical companies and whatnot, don't be surprised if then they say, okay, well, we're not listening to you guys because there really is a pandemic. And that's why I guess we need the government because you're kind of admitting that, yes, if there were a pandemic, we would need the government, right? So that's, that's my, my, my point right there, that if you totally get why the left libertarians are being unhelpful by denying it's even a thing, well, then you can see why for people who think it is a thing are also saying, let's not just pretend it doesn't exist. Okay. And again, if you're mad and say, oh, no, Bob, it's because we're right on this issue with it. Okay. I mean, you can say that, but I'm just at least pointing out just to be aware of the sense in which on many dimensions, they're analogous issues. Okay. And by the way, just to be clear, it's possible that COVID-19 is a thing, even though it's not remotely as big a deal as the alarmists make it out to be. Okay. So there's a big spectrum of possibilities in between. This is literally something made up and it's nothing versus it's, you know, the worst thing to ever befall mankind. And if it weren't for all the lockdowns, we would have have a billion fewer people this year. Okay, there's a big gap in there. It's like, for example, the government, the, the right took 9-11 and totally overreacted to it, right? And did all kinds of stuff that had nothing to do with 9-11. The war on terror was something they wanted to do anyway, had nothing to do with 9-11. But most people making that case did not say, the Twin Towers are still standing. <laughs> or they didn't say, you know, the Twin Towers, the, the people didn't die on that day, right? 
or they died for reasons besides buildings collapsing. Okay, so I'm just saying there's nothing, no harm in opposing government policy and being very cynical about it, even saying, yep, the Chinese created this in a lab intentionally because they had all of their white papers in place for here's how we're going to have a globally integrated crackdown on civil liberties, all that good stuff. And you don't need to then add on top of that, oh, and by the way, if you got COVID and died, it's, you know, why were you eating so much fast food? Well, that's the minor point I'm making. And if you think, no, I, I haven't seen any libertarians seeming callous on social media when it comes to victims of COVID-19, you're not looking very hard. That Okay, well, there, I said it. All right, now I'll move on. The next clip I want to play is from Malice explaining, and this is interesting because now that I've perhaps angered some of you by that take, I'm going to now go the other way and say I was kind of shocked when Malice said the following to Dave after they were talking about tech censorship, then Malice brought up the issue of the response to COVID-19. So I think Malice saw the analogy that I just did that, oh yeah, the way Dave here has been talking about the response to big tech censorship, I, I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think Malice saw the connection too. And then here's what he had to say. And incidentally, I'm when I cut this, you know, when we cut this clip off now that I'm about to play you this clip number two, Dave then took it back to big tech censorship. So it's not like I stopped the discussion and you're wondering, well, what did Dave have to say more about COVID-19? No, this right here is the extent in this part of the interview, at least, or the discussion where they're talking about COVID-19. All right, so let's take a listen. Carol Markowitz, who's a columnist for the New York Post, she's a strong conservative, and she's been kind of dipping her toe into these waters. I'm not hopeful I'm going to convince her of anarchism, but you know she's from the Soviet Union just like me, so she sees through a lot of this propaganda. that's very obvious to her. And she had asked me early on, what would the anarchist response to COVID be? And I'm like, I don't know, that'd be particularly different because a lot of it is like, let's look at the numbers, let's see what's working and what isn't. So it's not like we would say no one has any lockdowns and it's guaranteed that that's going to make sure uh, um, infection rate. We, we would be the ones actually following the science. It would be right. getting as much data, looking around as much as possible and making some of these hard choices. I don't think there would be any, I mean, there's a lot that we would do end up being differently in terms of having these prolonged lockdowns, but in terms of it being some unambiguous, we would have all the answers immediately when you're dealing with a dynamic emergency situation that's worldwide. I can't say that. Yeah. What you can say with some degree of certainty is that you wouldn't have the interference in what a lot of people are trying Correct. to do yeah, to yeah, help right. the, the situation, you know? Okay. So when I first heard that, I was kind of shocked. I don't want to make too much of this, but a big part of what Dave's been saying, and certainly Tom Woods, and I agree with them, is that the Libertarian Party missed a huge opportunity in the 2020 election and, you know, in the campaigning and messaging leading up to the election to say how we stand against lockdowns, right? Say what you will about the danger or lack thereof, if you want, of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 and all this stuff and whether face masks are effective or whatnot. But clearly libertarians should be against government-imposed lockdowns and mask mandates, you know, other coercive measures coming from the state. And the fact that the Jorgensen campaign was more focused on courting, you know, Black Lives Matter supporters rather than courting the people who are against the lockdowns was shocking, right? And so when Malice says that, oh, how would a free society handle COVID-19, basically the same way that's been done, 
I mean, that's sort of amazing, right? Now, incidentally, and Dave didn't like fall off his chair or anything. And that's, I don't know, I think that's fine. And Dave did kind of like, well, try to insert a little bit of pushback there. And I think there, that's just, I mean, I've been in a similar situation where if I'm interviewing somebody about something and they just throw in a line that I actually disagree with strongly, but it's not along the stuff that I wanted to talk to, a lot of times I'll just let it go. And so if you ever hear me interviewing somebody, I know some of you do email me like, Bob, this guy said this at 1834 in your interview and you just let that go. It's partly just because I don't feel like getting sidetracked on something that's not what we want to talk about or what I wanted us to be covering in the interview, right? So here, I'm not accusing Dave of inconsistency because he didn't fight malice on this point. But I, I do think it's worth just mentioning that that is interesting that malice would say it's the same response. Now, having said that, I think I know why he said it. It's partly because of what I was just getting at earlier that, and let me elaborate a little bit, there are a bunch of libertarians who not only were saying on this particular issue, but more generally, the way, quote, the free market handles viruses is just through natural herd immunity. And, you know, that's, I mean, let me not be quite, I mean, Jeff Tucker's been saying that basically from the beginning of this thing. All right, so again, it's I could just not name his name, but then everybody would know who I was talking about, and that's goofy. Let me just go ahead and say it, All right? And I pointed out to him on Twitter, I said, Jeff, that's that's not true. Because he said something like, this was months and months ago, but something like herd immunity, and by the way, by herd immunity, he means natural herd immunity. He doesn't mean the herd immunity that you get because enough people get vaccinated. Is the free market response to, I don't know if he said viruses or pandemics. And I just pointed out, I said, no, Jeff, that's, and he said, this is the first time in history that we've tried something else or something like that. All right, those wasn't exact words, but he clearly said, this time is different. Up till now, humanity has always dealt with viruses through natural herd immunity. And I said, that, that's not true, Jeff. Like, that's not how we dealt with Ebola. It's not that all of us are immune to Ebola. And that's why Ebola is not an issue is because we have herd immunity. That's, that's not the case. All right, it wasn't the case with the original SARS, right? We're not all immune to SARS because we all got it and beat it when we were eight or, you know, our parents had SARS parties to get all the kids immune to it. That's just not true. What we do, we isolate behavior. And incidentally, um, it was in, what, 2014, I believe, there was the Ebola outbreak in, was it Sierra Leone and some other countries? And there was a big thing. So this is the Obama administration, remember? And the Obama administration didn't want to cancel incoming flights from those affected countries because of political correctness reasons. And I know, I remember a bunch of people on the right were saying, this is crazy. This isn't obviously you would shut down air travel from these particular regions into the U.S. to contain the spread of this virus. And that let's not let concerns over political correctness and what the type of country is and oh people then that fostering racism or something or negative stereotype that's stupid obama administration stop being so pc and interfere with people's ability to travel to contain a virus there were plenty of people on the right saying that at the time they were not espousing the principle that well, why should someone's ability to conduct his or her life freely be altered because other people are afraid of getting sick which is now what a lot of people are saying like that this is some so again and, you know, I don't have two particular people in mind that are literally saying the opposite thing, but I'm sure there is a huge overlap. Again, people in 2014 saying 
it's a no-brainer that the government ought to shut down flights from countries where there's an Ebola outbreak who are now saying the very idea that people should have their freedoms restricted because other people are afraid of getting sick is just anathema to somebody who understands how freedom works. Okay, so uh, let me just mention, I mean, it's our uh, enemies note these things. Okay, so just like when Trump slides down a ramp or stumbles as he's going or just, you know, holds the railing carefully and everyone mocks him and says, oh, he's got neurological issues. And then Biden's tripping going down or up a stairs, I should say, several times. And those same people don't say anything. And, you know, we notice that. We who don't suffer from Trump derangement syndrome. Likewise, the critics of libertarianism note that, gee, when it comes to discussing the Civil Rights Act, standard libertarians say, hey, it's private business. If you don't want to serve black people or make them sit in a different section of the restaurant, it's your legal right to do so. It's awkward and you can get boycotted. And in this day and age, you'd probably go out of business soon enough. But the government can't tell businesses what they can and can't do and what restrictions they can, or yeah, can't tell businesses, you know, if they want to do things like say, to come in here, you have to be white or whatever. And with the bake the cake stuff, lots of libertarians were excoriating Gary Johnson for saying that bakeries couldn't turn away, you know, lesbian and, and homosexual couples who wanted to get uh, wedding cakes done for their ceremony. Right? They're just like, geez, Gary Johnson, do you not understand libertarianism 101? Of course, a business doesn't have to serve a cake to a gay couple. What's wrong with you, Gary Johnson? Go read some Rothbard. And yet, a lot of libertarians are now thinking, what? A business wants to say, I got to put a mask on my face if I want to enter the premises? Are you out of your... I'm calling the, the federal government in here. This is it's a violation of the ADA. This is, you're practicing medicine without a license. I'm not making this up. I've, I've seen libertarian websites run articles like this. And again, <laughs> AIER is the one I have in mind. Okay. So, I mean, like I said, whether you think that that's all fine or not, you can understand, I hope, how the critics of libertarianism who have been saying for years, you guys don't actually believe in these principles. You're just using it to excuse other things. And, you know, I've been saying, no, we really do believe in these principles. Well, it looks like to some people that when it gets inconvenient to you personally, now all of a sudden the principles go out the window and then you're the care and calling the government in, right? So again, I, I know it's awkward for me to say that, but I feel like I need to. Okay, so what Malice is doing here is talking about that issue. And yet I think he flips too far the other way by saying, oh, how it would be handled now is exactly, you know, what's happening now is, is the same sort of thing that would happen in a free society. All right, so let me just reiterate, and this is how I've handled it from the beginning. There was an old episode of the Tom Woods show where he and I were talking, we talked about Ebola back in the day, and then we talked about coronavirus when it was first becoming a thing in the U.S., so I think we actually recorded it in February of 2020. The episode didn't actually air until March 2020. And, you know, what I'm saying now is just reapplying those same principles from back then is, look, in a free society, every piece of property, every bit of real estate is owned by a person or multiple people, perhaps, you know, in the form of a corporation. And you can set whatever rules you want on it. And so if there's a virus, then, yeah, in principle you could say to come into this property, you got to have certain measures in place. You have to show proof of 
vaccination, right? That's your, your right to do so as a business owner. And I think it's important to stress that because it's, the issue is not just this particular issue. Even if you think COVID-19 is not a big thing and that, you know what, this crazy number of 500,000 plus deaths is completely inflated and really it's, you know, 13,000 at best that are really due to this and not, you know, other comorbidities and blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. But in principle, what if there really were a virus that was very contagious and very deadly? I think it's important for libertarians to show a free society could handle that and in fact would handle it much better than a status society. Otherwise, regular people are going to be afraid of fully embracing freedom. If you're admitting to them, yeah, freedom works unless there's a serious virus, in which case we're all dead. And I don't think we should be saying that to people. Just like with the climate change issue, right? Clearly, the alarmists on climate change are vastly exaggerating. They just throw out the ridiculous claims. And, you know, and I've done a lot of work myself in this area where the stuff the activists say, and that's certainly the politicians who then promulgate climate change policies or policies in the name of fighting climate change, I'll put it that way, they just throw out the most ridiculous statements that aren't backed up at all by, quote, the science. And they get a free pass because, oh, well, their heart's in the right place. All right. But even so, it's not correct, I don't think, to just say, oh, in a free market, you know, there would be no way to handle climate change issues. Just thank goodness climate change isn't really a thing. All right. That, no, in principle, suppose it were the case that if atmospheric CO2 emissions passed the certain threshold that it would spell huge disaster for billions of people. What would the free market be able to do in that scenario? And I think we need to spell that out. And I've tried to do that in some of my work, just to, just to you know, close the, the chink in our armor, plug the chink in our armor. Okay, so that's what Malice is doing here. And I think it's a good idea. And so let me just go ahead and you know, elaborate on that. So yes, in principle, if there were a disease such that it was really important to isolate people, that's the way it could happen in a free society that other businesses, other areas could say, you can't come on here unless, you know, you show proof that you've either had the virus already. And so now you're immune to it or that you've been vaccinated. And how would you, how would you know that you, you couldn't just ask the person's word for it? Cause maybe they would lie. And then here, this isn't science fiction. We have all sorts of analogs right now of how that could work. And you know, the most obvious example is credit ratings agencies. Right now, if you want to go and get a credit card, what do you do? They run your credit. If you want to go get a bank loan, what do they do? They run your credit. If you want to go buy a car and get a loan, you know, so that you're paying in installments and not just paying cash for it, what happens? They run your credit. They go check your credit report. And so what, how does it, you know, there are companies out there that keep track of all of your credit behavior. You know, how, much, how many outstanding debts you have? Have you been paying them on time? That sort of thing. And yes, just notice, if the government did that, that would be really creepy. And I realize, folks, that right now with all the spying and stuff that you could say, oh, the government already is doing that. I get that. I'm just saying, go back to 1970, if you will, and what the technology was at that time, right? So private companies were tracking everybody's credit behavior in order to give them a credit score and... You know, if you didn't have an adequate credit score, you wouldn't be able to rent an apartment, perhaps. You wouldn't be able to get a car early. You wouldn't be able to rent a car. Things like that. 
And you can imagine a totalitarian state running everyone's lives that, hey, if, if you don't have a sufficient score in this thing, then the state cuts off your access to all these essential goods and services. And that's a nightmare scenario. From that, it does not follow that in a free society, the fact that people have credit scores maintained by competing agencies or companies is a dystopian nightmare. Okay. And so I'm saying in a free society, if there really were a bad virus that was very contagious and very deadly, we have to acknowledge it's theoretically possible the quote correct optimal thing to do, the market response would be a bunch of properties would be very restrictive, would have border enforcement, right? So there's no such thing as freedom of movement per se in Ancapistan. And that's why I disagree with the people who call for open borders, you know, like Brian Kaplan. I say, that's not even what you believe, Brian. You're, you don't believe in open borders, right? You believe property owners can set whatever rules they want as to who can cross into their property or not. So that's weird that that's to me is described as open borders. But anyway, back to the virus stuff, property owners could set whatever rules they want to keep people out who they think might have the virus. And there's no infringement there. And it's not, th that per se should not alarm us as being a tyrannical nightmare. Now, it's true. If the government were to do that, then it is a tyrannical nightmare. So let me be crystal clear. I am adamantly opposed to these Biden administration COVID passports. I'm also, incidentally, against private businesses issuing them right now because of the current climate that, yeah, that's, it's just going to get rolled into government systems. Okay? So, again, there's nothing contradictory about this. We can say in a genuine free market, in principle, maybe not for this particular virus, probably not, but in principle for a sufficiently contagious and dangerous virus, you could imagine people needing to show proof of vaccination. And certainly even right now, like there's private schools that say, if you want your kid to go to this school, you got to have the standard shots, you know, against measles and whatever. And, you know, some parents are against that stuff. Some, some libertarian activists are very strong, you know, and they would called anti-vaxxers. And that's, you know, that they can do that. But also private school can set whatever rules it wants. Okay. So that's, you know, standard, to me, standard property rights exposition. So again, to be clear, right now, I am very much against COVID passports because I see that this is going to be a tool that they use in order to track everybody. So let me just go ahead and say that in, in case people think I'm missing something big here. The federal government for sure does not care about people not getting infected. That's not what, what's driving this stuff from the government side, right? Just like the push for gun control, like that's because they want to disarm the population. So think of it, the, the ruling class 10 years from now, they want to have a system in place so that they can track everybody's movements by central computer and they know where all the guns are located or at least the, the major stockpiles and particularly of the, you know, semi-automatics. And so how do they get there? They can't just do it in day one. They're going to just first say, oh, no, we're not trying to take your guns. We just want to register them. That's all we want to do. And oh, you know, from this point forward for new sales, right? So if they do that, they get that in place, then over time, the proportion of existing guns that they know about goes up and up, right? So they're thinking long-term and that, that's how government 
intervention works. You know, the, whole, the famous boiling frogs analogy. All right, they, they do, the, or the Fabian strategy, if you want to use that element. That's what they're doing. So yes, the COVID passport thing from the Biden administration is not about protecting people from a virus. It's because they realize, oh, we've always wanted to have a way to just have like a personal, you know, ideally they'd want microchips in people. He's like, oh, I can't believe you said that, Bob. Well, people are already proposing it. Right? This isn't something I'm making up. Yeah, that's used to be Alex Jones stuff 10 years ago. And it's becoming more and more mainstream, right? That that's people are going to say, well, you can't just have a car because what if you lose it? Why don't you have something that's inside your body so you can't lose it? You know, especially for like kids, right? That's, if you think of what I'm saying now is crazy, okay, well, just wait a few years. And then you'll say, oh yeah, Bob wasn't crazy. That is what they're doing, All right? What they're doing in China right now, this social credit score, that's real. I saw a presentation when I was at Texas Tech. A guy came and gave a presentation on that. This isn't what their plans are for the future. It's what they're doing right now. Where if you, for example, make a, if you say something derogatory about the communist party, then you get downgraded, right? And then then depending on your social credit score in China, that affects your ability to do things like rent a room at a hotel if your score is too low. And you say, well, why does the hotel care that you said something direct? Well, they don't care about that, but they want to stay in the good graces of the Chinese government. So that's why the hotel, quote, privately, voluntarily has their policy in place where they say, unless you have a sufficiently high social credit score, we won't let you stay here at our hotel. Okay, so again, all this stuff, the people who are very alarmed at it are correct to be so. Now, where I do disagree is if the state government has overly broad prohibitions because it gets to me that's, you know, fighting statism with statism. And here, let me just take a minute on that. So, for example, Governor DeSantis of Florida I don't know if he actually did it yet or if he's just talking about it, but is considering or perhaps has done just issuing an executive order banning private businesses in Florida from requiring proof of vaccination of any kind is my understanding. So not merely saying you're not allowed to cooperate with the federal government with the Biden administration COVID passport, but you can't have any kind of requirement. And I I don't think that's correct. I don't think you can do that in terms of libertarian, standard libertarianism, right? Because again, private businesses have the right to do that. And just for the optics, if nothing else, that, you know, libertarians were all for private, you know, in other words, libertarians say, hey, private businesses can do what they want, even if it's inconvenient and we don't agree with it. It might be, you might say it's evil, but hey, if you want to turn away certain customers, you're allowed to do that when it comes to people that the left tend to care about. But, then if it's people that the right care about and all of a sudden, hey, really, are there private businesses anymore in America? I mean, you can say that and I get that, but when it came to the bake the cake issue, a lot of right libertarians were not saying, really, is there such a thing as a private bakery anymore in this day and age with what with the Federal Reserve? People weren't saying that. No, they were private businesses when it came to that issue. So you can't say they're not private businesses when it comes to them doing policies that you'd happen not to like. Otherwise, it doesn't look like you actually believe in those principles, right? So I'm just going to say that in terms of rhetorical consistency. The other thing, by the way, there's no harm. Nothing has changed on the margin by you saying, yeah, I wish Governor DeSantis would have been clearer in his regulation or his prohibition to just say they can't participate with the federal stuff, 
right? You changing your messaging on social media is not going to change what happens in the real world, right? But it will at least make you more obviously consistent with what you've been saying. So there's that, there's that element as well, that it's not like we commenting on the passing scene are actually setting policy. And so really there's not a harm in just being a little bit more nuanced in how you're communicating what, quote, the libertarian position on this issue is. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion to remember that Nobel laureate economist who has a column with the New York Times. That's right. It's our good friend, Paul Krugman. Believe it or not, Krugman has not reformed his ways. Arguably, he's become worse since Tom Woods and I discontinued our famous podcast, Critiquing Krugman, first weekly and then bi-weekly. But you know what? You can still recapture some of that zeal for truth and skewering that you came to love when you listened to the podcast if you go get the book, Contra Krugman. And to be clear, it's not a transcript of those episodes. These are columns that I wrote over many years critiquing Krugman, and there's a whole list of different subject areas. It's not just Keynesian economics. It's also climate change. All sorts of stuff is in this book. In fact, when I read the initial manuscript, you know, looking for typos and stuff like that, when I was done, I, I just thought, you know, should we just hang up the show here? Because what more needs to be said? I almost felt bad for him. It was, it was pretty brutal. And uh, at this point, we have stopped the show. So maybe it was prophetic. To get your hands on this book, go to ContraKrugmanBook.com. I think you're going to like it. All right, let me spend a minute now since we're talking about vaccines and whatnot. I believe the most popular tweet I've ever sent out just happened last week, and it sort of surprised me. I was making a modest point, but obviously vaccines are a big deal now for people. So let me just go ahead and now that I have more time to explain myself, make the point. So a few years ago, I was in a debate. I think it was hosted by Fee. The, the reason I'm not certain is because Fee sometimes would reprint things I had done elsewhere. And so I'm not, but I believe Fee itself hosted this, but where the article I have now that I could find when I Googled for it is on Fee. And it was about mandatory vaccination, right? So again, this was before COVID-19. And I took the position that mandatory vaccinations are incompatible with liberty. And I was debating, I think it was an MD who was saying mandatory vaccinations are compatible with liberty. And so here's just part of it, what I explained in the article. I said, look at, Unlike other issues like, like having the TSA for airport security or having the NSA scan everybody's emails looking for, you know, Al-Qaeda links or whatnot, that in those areas, at least on the surface, there was a prima facie trade-off between freedom and safety, right? So in practice, I don't think there actually is a trade-off. You give the government power to keep you safe from terrorists or, you know, from drug dealers or whatever and actually you're going to get more of both in terms of harmful drug dealers, at least. But at least you could understand how an interventionist could say, hey, because of 9-11, I don't trust the market's security measures when it comes to air travel. I want a bigger footprint of government intervention in airport screening. You could at least understand that. We're saying when it comes to vaccinations, the case is much weaker, even on its own terms. Because... And, and this is the way to, you know, to think through the argument. 
suppose a vaccine were 100% safe and 100% effective. Okay, so by the effective, I mean that if you get this thing, you know, you get this shot or two shots, whatever, once you get the full battery of what you're supposed to, suppose that meant you are not capable of getting that infection anymore. That virus can't get into your body or if it gets in, it gets squashed immediately by your immune system, right? And there's no side effects, right? So anybody in the population who wants to get this thing can get it. So, and I guess also let's assume it's not prohibitively expensive, that's another, I guess, component of my argument that I didn't think of. Okay, so meaning if we're in a situation where everybody who wants the vaccine can get it and it's 100% effective at keeping them safe from infection from this virus, whatever virus we're talking about, then in that scenario, somebody else's decision to not get vaccinated doesn't affect anybody else. Everything is completely a personal decision because the only people who are at risk from catching this thing are the ones who have freely chosen to refrain from being vaccinated, right? So that seems like a perfect thing. It's, you know, it's going to be like, you wouldn't say, oh, well, you can't trust pizza to the free market because, you know, what if some people don't eat the pizza? You say, well, they can just go buy a piece of pizza if they want it, right? You know, the, there you go. So it's like that. And, and like when it comes to, you know, public schools to say, if there's parents who say, hey, I don't want my kid getting this thing because I did some research and I'm concerned about such and such. I don't want my kids getting it or for religious reasons. You know, we, I don't want to vaccinate my kids. The other parents who get mad about it and say, no, that's, that's irresponsible or that you're being anti-scientific. We say, well, if your kids are vaccinated, what do you care? Right? Okay. So that's step one. Now, what is the response to that? So the pro-mandatory vaccine people will say, oh, that's being way too glib in the real world. Number one, you know, vaccines aren't actually 100% effective. So even though my kid has been vaccinated, there's still a chance they're going to get sick. And number two, there are people who can't take the vaccine for safety reasons, right? Because maybe they're immunocompromised. And so it's actually possible that even the weakened strain of this thing that we inject into you is enough to, you know, really make you sick. Or you might, you know, some people have allergic reactions to things like that, you know, so it's not that if they inject you with the measles vaccine that you get the measles, but it's like, it could do something else to you that's bad. And so that's where, and then also in general, young children can't get every type of vaccine out there, right? It's not that when a baby shoots out of the womb, all of a sudden they get 19 different shots for vaccines, right? And so at any given time, there's actually a chunk of the population that even the quote experts agree, even the CDC, you go to the CDC's website and you look at vaccination schedules and they will say the types of groups that should not receive the standard recommended vaccines, you know, for various ages of children, they'll, they'll give, you know, or not just for children, but you know, for anybody, you can go look at the CDC's recommended, you know, history, a life cycle of vaccines based on your age. And they will have exceptions, say, unless you're in these types of groups, in which case do not get this vaccine right? So this isn't Jenny McCarthy making stuff up when she says vaccines can be dangerous. Everybody agrees vaccines can be dangerous. And that's what I'm saying. Ironically, the people who are mad at the anti-vaxxers and how irresponsible you're being, the way to make, they have to make their cases, they cite the fact that, hey, there are people out there that if we gave this vaccine to, it could kill them. So stop being so selfish and stick this thing in your kid's arm, you jerk. It's safe. Trust us. Do you see how weird that is? 
I'm not saying it's a contradiction, mind you. I, I get how, well, no, a careful reading of the science and tells me the balancing of the risks against the possible benefits. And da, 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 da. So again, I'm not accusing people of literally contradicting themselves, but I'm saying it's funny how the conversation originally goes, this is totally safe, you anti-vax idiots. Take the tinfoil off your head and stick this needle in your arm. It's safe. Stop being so anti-science. We have known vaccines work for, for 100 years to, oh, well, the reason you need to do this and why it's irresponsible and antisocial if you don't is there's millions of people out here that we can't put this thing into their arm because it could really hurt them. All right, so my point is, it's a very modest one, that we're not arguing about whether these things are safe or not. We're just arguing over the particulars of which people should get them and which shouldn't. And I'm saying in a free society, how can the presumption not overwhelmingly be that the individual in question gets to decide whether this thing, whether the benefits outweigh the risks, as opposed to third parties just deciding on your behalf? Or if in the case of children, the presumption should be with the parents. Now, again, still in a free society, property rights are the thing that's really the issue. So it's not that you as a parent get to decide whether your kid's vaccinated or not. And then you also get to decide whether they get to go to school at this particular location. Now the school is privately owned. And if the owners of that school decide, we think the best way to serve our customers is to have certain vaccination policies in place and say, if you want to come here for third grade, or maybe they don't even have it broken up by grade anymore. If you want to come here, you know, and you're, and you're this age level, then you need to have these shots. And we're following the guidance of the private medical clinic of such and such. All right, and that, that's the standards we're using. And we, we will continue to consult with various groups to see what the latest science says about vaccines. But right now, this is our policy if you want to come here for the next academic year. Right? That's perfectly consistent with property rights. All right. And so, but in, but in our day and age now with the statism, I'm saying clearly to me, there's no way it can be compatible with freedom, individual liberty to say that the state can mandate that you got to get stuff injected into your body against your will. That's crazy. And again, I'm saying, notice the only way you can even make that case is if you admit up front that, oh, the reason we have to force this thing into your arm against your will is because there's lots of people out there who we're admitting should not be getting this thing because it's too dangerous for them. All right. So that was the modest point that I made in my tweet. I boiled it down. And uh, just about everybody misunderstood the modest point. I was everybody read more into it than I was saying. They thought I was an anti-vaxxer. I'm not. Okay, let's play the next clip. Changing gears. Roll the tape, folks. This is one of the reasons why we are so skeptical of minarchists is this idea of equality before the law is an absurdity. Powerful rich people are always going to have more access to quality and quantity of objects. That means cars. That yeah. means medical care, that means food, and that also means access to justice. You can't have everyone have equal lawyers. Someone is going to have better lawyers, and those lawyers are going to have connections, or they're going to be intimidating, or whatever the situation is. It yeah. is certainly going to be a competitive advantage. in a court. At the very least, even if it's not in the nefarious way, you're paying for some guy who knows how to brainwash that jury. That is an yeah. enormously important skill that's going to have enormous consequences in the outcome of any trial. 
And even if you had some type of anarchist system without lawyers, then smarter people will have a big advantage in defending themselves. I mean, there's there's yes. no way it's it's a ghost that you're chasing. The a equality slope, in any like sense. Max Sterner yes. said, yes. Yes. Okay. So here I disagree with what they're saying. All right. I'm and I'm concerned again, kind of going back to what would your enemies think or what would people who are not anarcho-capitalists think if they heard that? It sure sounds like Michael and David were just <laughs> also known as Malice and Dave. I don't know why I called them Michael and David there. And it sure sounded like Malice and Dave were saying, oh yeah, this idea that there's equality before the law is a myth and that let's stop worrying, you know, let's stop searching after that. Everybody knows in any society, the rich always can buy whatever verdict they want. All right, they didn't literally say that, but they sounded close to saying that. And so my point is, okay, if a progressive hears you say that, they're not going to say, oh, you know, that's some refreshing honesty. I love it when these guys, these ANCAPs are candid. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I didn't realize it. No, they're going to say, right, this is why I reject your nutty system, guys. At least our system, we have some checks and balances. We have public elections to get judges in there so we can sort of maintain some honesty. Yeah, and there's problems that occur, whatever. but at least when we catch that a judge is being dishonest, we can vote them out. Whereas under your system, you guys just admitted justice goes to the richest person, to the highest bidder, and that's what we reject. Okay, so I don't think their discussion there was adequate. Okay, so number one, there wouldn't be juries, I don't think, in a standard anarcho-capitalist framework. In any other context, you imagine a jury system would be ludicrous, right? You go to, you want to get your car fixed. You bring it in. Something's wrong with my car. I don't know what it is. And imagine if the system is, okay, what we do is we go get 12 people who we've made sure don't really know that much about your car ahead of time. And then you hire, you know, one person who's an expert mechanic to say what we need to do is change, you know, replace the engine. And then we hire another expert mechanic who says, no, really all we need to do is change the wiper blades. And then they make their case to the jury who, like I said, on the front end, we vetted to make sure they really don't know much about cars. And that's how they're eligible to be on the jury. And then the way they vote is what happens to your car. Does that sound like a good system? No, that's crazy. And yet that's how we determine who's a murderer or not right now in our society. And we, and we think that that's a, a cherished principle of justice is to have a jury okay so let me be clear jury trial was a response to awful justice that just you know the king would meet out right you wouldn't just want to have judges who were just handpicked by the king and then you know ruling that way so that was the function of having a jury of your peers historically but it's a nutty system and i don't think it would happen in a free society Instead, I think what would happen, I'll put a link here, folks. Again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 192 to one of my lectures on private security, or sorry, the market for security, I think is the title. It meets you every year. I, I give a talk like this where I just spell out what happens. You know, like if somebody breaks in your house and steals a TV in a free society, how does that get resolved? So I'll, I'll link to that. All right, but... For our purposes right here, what happens is there's competing judges. There's experts in various types of law. And so depending on the nature of the alleged crime or civil offense, the plaintiff would say to the defendant, okay, let's go have our case before, you know, one of these five judges that are in our area and who are acknowledged experts in this type of law. 
depending on the case. And if that person refused, that would look bad in the eyes of the community, right? And so the plaintiff could say, look, this person is not willing to take it to any of these reputable judges. So that would look bad and there'd be consequences that would follow. And so you would, you, so you as a defendant would want to have your case heard, right? So that you, it wouldn't, there wouldn't be a presumption that you must be guilty if you're afraid to have your day in court. And so that any of the judges picked would actually be agreed to by both parties ahead of time. So they would have to have a reputation for fairness. And you wouldn't then bring in 12 people who don't know anything about the case, which is what they do right now, in case you don't know that, right? Like, so for the, the George Floyd case right now, the prosecutor, well, both attorneys on the front end when they're doing jury selection, they don't want somebody who's been following the case closely and already has his or her mind made up. They ideally want to find people who don't follow the news or like the OJ trial. They wanted people who really didn't know anything about it because they want to be able to control the narrative that, you know, they're fed in the courtroom. So that, that's what I'm alluding to when I keep saying for people who don't know anything about the car or whatever, that, that's what I'm getting at. All right, so you don't do that. No, you want people who are expert in this area of the law. And that's what the judges are. But again, they're going to be fair because if they had a reputation of not being fair, then one side or the other wouldn't agree to it. Just, and again, this isn't science fiction. This isn't just something I'm making up in a little Ancapistan that, oh, come on, that's not how the world works. Right now, when it comes to things like divorces, where you want to just have mediators who come and, you know, and spell a thing out, if it was just known that, oh yeah, this person that the couples go to always comes down in favor of the wife, well then the husbands would never agree to that, right? So that person wouldn't be in business, right? So I think when people just assume that there's always going to be bias and unfairness in judicial rulings, they don't actually think there's a fact of the matter. They don't actually think that there's a way to impartially apply the law. And, and that's, you know, in some cases it might be tricky. That's why you need expert judges who have judicial expertise, right? Who, who is the, the fairest person in the land kind of thing. That's, what, that's the role they play, right? So it's not that the law automatically tells you what the outcome is in a given case. You need to apply it and that's what judges do, right? They write an opinion. That's the, even how we talk nowadays, that the just, you know, Supreme Court rules a certain way and the justices write an opinion. They're saying, this is my opinion of what the relevant law has to say for these facts of this case. And they sometimes, not sometimes, they often disagree with each other. Okay, so that's how it would, you know, I don't think there'd be juries and there would be impartiality. Now, it's true, if under the table, some rich guy supplies a judge with money to rule in his favor, that could happen. That's not impossible. But the moment that was discovered, boom, that judge is out of business forever. That would be the death blow to that person's career. And let me just use a different example. Would anybody say that you can't have chess tournaments either in a state of society or a free society? Because everybody knows that, you know, especially if there's, if there's like a, a bunch of money at stake, you know, like if the winner of the chess tournament gets a $30,000 purse, everybody knows that the person with the connections or the person with the most popularity is going to win, right? He'll just bend the rules and, you know, no. Because it's, it's objective who won or not. Everybody knows the rules of chess and if somebody tried to cheat, and say, oh, well, how about my pawn gets to move up four spaces because I'm real popular and I'm rich and I'm going to pay the judge. No, that'd be stupid. Everybody watching would know. You can't do that. That's an illegal move, all right? Or there's allegations. People say, oh, yeah, Michael Jordan and some of his famous, you know, game-winning plays, the rest let him get away with certain things that, you know, would have been called a foul 
by somebody else. Okay, but even there, if Jordan just flat out, you know, punches some guy in the face in order to get open to take a jump shot, the refs would call that. All right, so I'm saying refereeing when it comes to competitive events, even in our society right now, we can see it's pretty fair, way fairer than the state's judicial system is, certainly way fairer than the political process is, like to see, hey, Trump said that the election was stolen. Was that fairly investigated? That's way more corrupt than, you know, did Tom Brady properly inflate footballs or not? Okay, so I'm, I'm saying the way that Dave and Malice just kind of quickly just said, oh, yeah, yeah, rich people get to hire the best lawyers and therefore and, and trick the jury. I mean, that's to, to me, yeah, what they were saying is true. Rich people have an advantage in any system, but I don't think it's rich people can buy verdicts the way they can buy more cars. Okay, one last clip for this episode. Go ahead, all of you sound engineers in the booth there, go ahead and run it. So the other thing that Will brought up a bit was the Civil Rights Act and how libertarians uh-huh. opposed that and that he's yeah. – and, and he made an argument which, uh, you know, it's, it's not original to him but is, is a, a strong argument and a fair argument that he goes, look, say whatever you want to about the marketplace. It was not going to desegregate the Jim Crow South, that that had to be done by the force of the federal government and that you actually had to have rules that say, no, you cannot hang a whites-only sign out front of your business. And I'll tell you, for a long time, a lot of libertarians make this argument, and I was one who used to make it as well. And I've kind of, you know, just looking at more data that I've taken in, I'm not sure it's as strong as I once thought it was, which was basically that the market would solve all of these problems and that the market would, it's like, look, you're going to turn down black people who want to come eat at your restaurant. That's bad business. Someone else will be willing to take that business and this will drive you out. And eventually the market pressures will make you integrate. You know, it's easy to say that in the abstract. It's easy to say, I've thought about this logically. But real life is very complicated and there's many different factors and many different forces at work. And you could, if I was just, and this is kind of what made me think about that, was just looking at things like Tucker Carlson struggling to find sponsors. Now you can say, if we were just thinking about this on paper, you'd go, no, 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 no. He's got the biggest show in cable news. People will want that sponsorship. There's no way the market will solve this and there'll be lots of companies who are willing to sponsor Tucker Carlson. But there's not really. There's like my pillow and like one other guy. And they, they actually really struggle to find sponsors. And that's because the thing that's easy to overlook is culture and hatred. And hatred is a powerful force. And the people who really, really hate Tucker Carlson have been empowered by this culture to feel like they can give a world of shit to any sponsor that would sponsor him. And so they just won't do it. And if our culture is capable of that, the idea that the racism in the Jim Crow South could not have kept some establishments being like, we don't want black people in here. It's not as strong an argument as I once thought it was. Okay. So here, and this, this is a great point. And again, I salute Dave that he is, you know, he's not being dogmatic. He's saying, I used to think this and now my thinking has evolved. So that's great. We should never be afraid of changing our opinions on things because then it looks like we contradicted ourselves or that we were wrong, you know, that that's good. Because if if we refuse to ever admit that we've moved our position, then that means we're locked in 
to always believe the same thing we believe when we were age 32 or whatever. And you can never grow. So it's better to be flexible and say, yep, if I genuinely get new information, think about new things and realize I was wrong, just go ahead and admit it and then adjust yourself. And then, yep, it'll be awkward. It'll be embarrassing. You'll have some things on record where you even admitted you were wrong. But in the moment, you will be as good as you can possibly be as opposed to being trapped as an old version of your beliefs. And hey, this guy has never, you know, hey, I'm always right. I've never been wrong because you never admit it, but everyone's going to know. Yeah, yeah. You contradict yourself there, buddy. Okay. So let me just respond to this a little bit though. Number one, when Dave says Tucker Carlson could only get two sponsors, that that's not true. Dave Smith would be willing, you know, you, you don't think Louis Gomez or Louis <laughs> would, uh, would advertise Gas Digital on the Tucker Carlson show, especially as the price fell, right? Like they really couldn't get any sponsors. And you think they say, okay, yeah, we'll get Tucker's whole audience hearing about Gas Digital if you pay us $100 for a 30-second spot. You don't think they would snatch that up, right? So when they say they could, could only get two sponsors, that's like saying, yeah, I tried to sell my house and I couldn't find a buyer. What you mean is I was trying to sell it for, quote, a fair price and I marketed it for a while and couldn't get anything... If you went to sell your house for 10% of what you think it's worth, you know, people might be suspicious and think there's got to be something wrong with it. Why are you giving it away so cheaply? But if they came in and inspected it and saw it, you could get rid of the house. Okay, so likewise, it's not literally true that Tucker Carlson only has two people, the My Pillow guy and somebody else who's willing to advertise on their show. More generally on this, and, and by the way, uh, Malice did a good job. I, I stopped the clip just to make, you know, to get the context. Malice went on to, I, I like what he had to say. And, and I'm just saying some other thoughts here too. The points I didn't see him and Dave make. Number one, they were Jim Crow laws. That, that's a critical point. That it's crazy to blame the segregated South on the free market when it was Jim Crow laws. Why were there laws in place, right? If this was just gonna be the market outcome, and the reason there were laws in place is if you went and asked, you know, the racist power brokers in these southern states in whatever the 1950s and 60s, why do you have what we now call, you know, Jim Crow laws on the books? They would say, oh, because there are irresponsible, profit-hungry businesses that would just cater to the bottom line and serve the, sell to the highest bidder without regard to, you know, social values or whatever they would say without, you know, maintaining the proper hierarchy in our, in our society to just come in looking for the fast buck and they're irresponsible. So that's why we need laws to ensure that our way of life continues or whatever. They, they would talk like that. In other words, they would say, you can't trust free market capitalism because that won't maintain the important things of life. So they would be admitting we need these laws in place because otherwise market forces would break down segregation, which they thought was important. You know, they thought segregation was important to maintain. Okay, so there's that. In particular, let me just read in case you've never heard this before, the famous Rosa Parks case. That wasn't a private bus company that had its own voluntary policy of whites in the front and blacks in the back. So I'm reading here from the Khan Academy entry on it. Rosa Parks was arrested on December 1st, 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama for failing to give up her bus seat so that it would be available for white passengers when instructed to do so by the bus's driver. Parks was arrested at a time in American history when, under Jim Crow laws, African Americans faced discrimination and segregation across the South. Jim Crow bus laws in Montgomery at the time of Parks' arrest established a section for whites at the front of the bus and a section for blacks in the back. 
The law required that when the white section filled, black passengers in the, quote, colored section give up their seats and move further back. Okay, and then it goes on for the, you know, particulars of what happened to her on that day. All right, so again, just pointing out here that libertarian types are not under an obligation to try to awkwardly explain why the free market maintained segregation so long. No, there were government laws upholding segregation in the South. And again, if you asked the proponents of them, well, why do you need these laws? They wouldn't just say, oh yeah, this is really redundant. It's just dressing for what would already, they would say, oh, because if, if not, then there'd be these irresponsible, or even, you know, black owned businesses might do such and such, you know, come in. So we, we got to, you know, ensure what we know the correct thing to do is. Okay. Uh, more generally, I think Dave is correct that you need to just analyze it and say the standard libertarian response to the issue of segregation is to say something like, okay, yeah, each business owner, and this is like, I made this analysis in my politically incorrect guide to capitalism. I walked through this kind of analysis to say, Yes, in a free market where businesses can do what they want without government intervention, there's nothing in principle stopping a business from saying we only serve white patrons, right? That would, that would be legal. That would be a permissible. But you would be paying a penalty if it really were, you know, just based on irrational prejudice. And so in a way that comes up, that, and let me do it the, the simplest way when it comes to hiring, all right, so if you're a business and you have two applicants and either they're the same productivity, you know, white applicant and black, they're the same productivity, but the white applicant is going to insist on a higher pay, let's say $80,000 and the black applicant only 60000 If you're a racist business owner and you hire the white applicant, then you're being penalized to the tune of $20,000 per year, right? You see how that works? Or if it's different, if it's you'd pay them the same, and the black applicant is actually more qualified, meaning they would you know, be more productive, they would bring more extra revenue to your firm, then you're losing out on whatever that gap is. All right, and so that I argued in the book that to the extent that employers actually discriminate when it's not warranted, then they are automatically fined in the free market. You don't need the government to set up a fine. They automatically are fined in terms of opportunity cost. And it's per directly proportional to the egregiousness of the discrimination, of the unfairness of it, right? So if they're pretty similar and the guy has a preference for one group over another, then it's not that the, then the quote fine, implicit fine or penalty isn't that big. But then by the same token, the injustice isn't that big because they're basically the same. But if there's a huge difference and the person because of base prejudice you know, hires the less qualified or the more expensive applicant, well, then the quote fine is bigger. And so, yeah, it doesn't guarantee that the market will always do the thing that you think is correct in terms of racial equality, but it is penalizing them and it's automatic. Whereas have we seen trusting the political process at best, you have to get enough non-racists to vote properly, right? So that's another way of putting it. And then Malice made this point explicitly when he responded to Dave is that, it's a little bit weird for people to say, oh yeah, America, I'm, I'm elaborating, Mel's didn't quite put it this way, but I'm just elaborating. Right now, the standard progressives is America is a white supremacist nation and that's why we need the government to go ahead and fix everything. And I was like, well, wait a minute, if we're all white supremacists, then why would you trust the political process? You know, that doesn't make any sense. It's actually, you're admitting at best, there's a 
this vocal minority of racists that the rest of us can outvote and keep in check, if, if that's your view. If you, if you want to trust the government to fix racism or dismantle systematic racism. If there really were systematic racism upheld by the vast majority of people, then it's weird. Why would you be in favor of democracy to fix that? That makes no sense, all right? Whereas in the market, like I say, it doesn't matter what public opinion is. It's if there is a person who makes a decision, an employer who makes a decision that doesn't line up with the facts based on irrational prejudice, then boom, you are automatically penalized for that. And so all it takes is one competitor. All it takes is one business in the industry to not be acting like that. And that person will make more profits than everybody else. Okay. And so that's just, just in general, you know, that's how people, you know, free market economists explain how inefficiency gets weeded out, how mistakes get weeded out. You wouldn't say, oh, we need the government to make sure cars are made the most efficient way possible because private businesses might do it wrong. Let's have a government commission of experts force businesses to make cars the right way. You'd say, well, no, because first of all, why would you trust the government to know that? Decentralized market system allows for discovery. That's the best way to discover what the right way to make cars is given technology and costs and blah, 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 consumer preferences. And then the firm that at any given time is closest to the ideal will outcompete everybody else. So it's not perfect, but it's the best system we can think of to give the right incentives to do that and allow the maximum freedom of discovery. Okay, now, incidentally, there's a nuance there. If you're a business owner and you're in an area where a lot of your customers might have racial prejudice and they don't want to eat in a restaurant with people who don't look like them, well, then they can pay more, right? And so there, the, the business owner is not the one bearing the brunt. If he says, oh, no, if I just have, you know, I'm in the deep south in 1950, if I have all white people serving food to all white customers, then that can be a successful business model. But notice there, the white customers have to pay more than what they would pay if they went to a burger joint where there weren't such policies, okay? And that's, it's the same thing like right now, if you go to a fancy steakhouse, the staff is gonna be better looking than if you go to uh, a waffle house, right? I mean, let's, let's not beat around the bush. That's clearly a true statement that I just said. And so among other things, that's what you're paying for when you pay more at a steakhouse is that the staff is more physically attractive than they are at a Waffle House. That's one of those, not just that the meat is a better cut, okay? And so because the people running and say, yep, the kind of person that wants to come to a fancy steak dinner, they're paying for a lot of things and we're charging them accordingly, all right? And so now most people don't, I mean, some progressives might have a problem with that. They might say that's, you know, beauty discrimination or, you know, they'd have some sillier term for it. But most people don't have a problem with that. It's just other types of preferences they do have a problem with, okay? And that's, that's fine. And I agree with your judgments on those cases, but I'm saying the way markets work is if consumers are willing to pay more. But again, there's the penalty there that you're, you're having to pay more for your meal if you're a racist in that kind of a system than if you were, you know, had no problem being served by people who don't look like you, then you could get the same tasty meal for cheaper. And so notice right there, automatically the free market in a sense, charges you more or you have to pay for your racism. And so that doesn't guarantee racism gets eliminated, but it does ensure that it's penalized. And again, in proportion to how egregious it is. 
So I just want to make that clarification that, and Dave's bringing up another point. It's not just that, but also, hey, if there's groups out there that, you know, if you're a business owner and you were to say, oh no, we, we hire people of all colors and, you know, anybody can come in and eat here. It's not just necessarily that they would lose the patronage of racist white diners, but that, you know, there would be media campaigns and like the local newspaper would would tell everybody, hey, don't eat at this restaurant because they don't understand our way of life and they don't understand, you know, the importance of segregation. And so there might be people in the community who actually don't care one way or the other and would have gone there for the cheaper burger, but now they don't because they don't want to get, you know, their head bitten off by the vocal minority, in this case of, you know, the people maintaining white purity or whatever. So Dave, again, he's drawing an analogy to the current situation and just saying, oh yeah, the way I thought market forces would quickly punish racist businesses in the 50s and 60s, and that's why you didn't need the Federal Civil Rights Act, I now see there's more going on. And so he's right, and there is. But again, even there, notice, if we're just respecting property rights, still, those business owners are being forced to forego extra profit because they don't want to get yelled at by these people. And ultimately, like it just, you know, pushes the problem back one step and say, okay, well, collectively then they're all missing out because of this group that's going to penalize them. And ultimately it's because this vocal group and the people run the newspaper and the media campaign are ultimately forcing the people who listen to them to pay more for burgers than they otherwise would. And so, you know, you're, just, you're pushing the problem back, but still they're not eliminating the, the inefficiency there's still the fact that people are paying more to maintain this system and that that penalty, as it were, on their irrational prejudice is always there. It's just where it falls can get moved around a little bit based on the particulars. Okay, well, that's a good place for me to wrap it up. Thanks for your attention, folks, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>